0: The more that I study the life and the ministry of Jesus, the more not only am I humbled, deeply humbled, and endeared to him, so much so that I'll follow him the rest of my life. But as I look at Jesus' life and ministry, there's a lot of things, and maybe it's because I've already accepted him as the sinless son of God, that I just am not surprised by. These things might surprise you, but they just, they don't surprise me anymore. For example, I'm not all that surprised that multitudes of people follow Jesus. You know, you're reading through the Gospels and, and you read of these crowds that come out. Like, you would assume that the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords would be able to, to draw a crowd, that he'd be able to inspire the allegiance of some fishermen. Like, it's not hard to imagine that a personality like Jesus, like we see in the Gospels, would attract desperate masses longing for a leader? Like, is it really a surprise to anyone that a man like Jesus would garner not just attention, but people would follow him? He was radical. He was a revolutionary. Like, I'm not surprised by that at all. Yeah, I'm, I'm not also surprised or amazed when I read that people were astonished at Jesus's teaching. Like, you would assume that the same voice that spoke all things into existence would carry with it a a certain amount of, of maybe authority or gravitas, that people would be naturally captivated by the things that he said? I mean, how hard would it be to really teach a compilation of scriptures designed to reveal the character and the personality and the purpose, the mission of the Christ, when you happen to be the Christ? Like, shouldn't the living word be able to effectively communicate the written word? I think so. I'm not all that wowed when I read of Jesus performing the supernatural. It doesn't, doesn't blow my mind anymore. If you believe the first few words of the Bible, in the beginning God created, and you believe Jesus is that God, not a lot surprises you. I mean, if he fashioned all things out of nothing, multiplying a few fish and bread to feed the multitudes, that shouldn't be that big of a deal. Like if Jesus, not just the creator of all things, but the sustainer, so he holds all things together. If he holds together the very particles of H2O, don't you think he could make those particles sustain his weight as he walked across the sea? (laughs) If Jesus had the authority to cast demons out of heaven, don't you think he would have the authority to cast them out of people? If his very word created the wind and the waves, don't you think the same word would be able to tell the wind and waves To stand down? Isn't that logical? I mean, honestly, shouldn't the one who by his very nature is supernatural, God and man, be able to then perform deeds that exceed the order of the natural universe? I think so. Along these lines, I'm not all that astonished when I observe Jesus miraculously healing the human body. (laughs) If Jesus designed the eyeball, the human ear the ability to speak, shouldn't he then be able to restore sight, heal the deaf, or loose the tongue of the mute? If as we read in Genesis, Jesus fashioned man from the dust of the earth, is it really crazy to believe that he was then able to restore motion to the paralytic or or restore the function of a withered hand? If Jesus authored life itself, Should we be shocked to see him raise the dead? Though marvelous, I'm not all that shocked that Jesus would choose to die on the cross for sinners. If, as the Bible so clearly states, God created me, loves me, and desires a relationship with me, knowing that there's nothing I can do to remedy the sin problem that separates us, doesn't it make then perfect sense that in his love, God would give his only begotten son, that whosoever might believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. I know that it sounds absolutely crazy to take at purely face value, but I'm not all that astounded that Jesus was resurrected to life himself after being dead for three days. Like to think, after reading of Jesus' life and ministry, that his death would be the end of the story? Like, that seems absolutely ridiculous to me. Like, frankly, in the presence of so much circumstantial evidence, the only reasonable assumption that one can make about the resurrection is that it would have been impossible for the Son of God to have been bound by the grave. Though everything I read concerning the life and the ministry of Jesus endears me all the more to Him, none of the things I mentioned exceed my already lofty expectations, with maybe one exception. When I read through the gospel record, what I do find surprising, if not shocking, scandalous, is that the religious leaders, the very men in Israel who had been charged by God with the task of looking out for the Messiah, the Christ, would knowingly resist him. And yes, I said that. The Bible is clear that these men knowingly resisted Jesus as the Messiah, as the Christ, as the Savior. Understand, the religious leaders in Jesus' day did not resist him because they lacked enough evidence. Like, consider for just a few minutes the incredible amount of revelation these men had been specifically given. And Luke 2, directly following Jesus' birth and his circumcision, we're told that Jesus, baby Jesus, is presented in the temple where an old man named Simeon and a woman named Anna publicly declare that baby boy, for all to hear, to be the long-promised Savior of the world. Then in Matthew 2, in response to the mysterious arrival of the wise men from the east, we read that the scribes, the religious leaders, actually tell Herod that the king of the Jews would be born in Bethlehem. You see, this was a fact that Herod the Great was so convinced of, he ends up having all of the baby boys in Bethlehem executed two years and under after being double-crossed by the Magi. In Luke 2, while Mary and Joseph spent three days trying to find a 12-year-old Jesus that they had lost, and imagine how freaked out you would be. God comes to you and says, I'm going to give you my son. And then you lose him. Like, they're frantic. (laughs) Not cool. I I lost God's kid. This is not a good thing. Three days, they're searching for him. They're looking for him. And then what happens? We're told that, that when they find him, Jesus says to his parents, well, I've been in the temple. And don't you know that I'm supposed to be about my father's business? But then Luke makes an interesting observation about his time with the religious scholars, writing, and all who heard Jesus were astonished at his understanding and answers. Jesus was not a secret. He wasn't kept in a back room or a corner. In Mark 1, the beginning of Jesus's earthly ministry, following a miraculous healing of the leper, Jesus does something interesting with the man. At the end of Mark 1, Jesus commands the man, after healing him, to go to the temple and to present himself to the priests. Why? As a testimony to them. Lepers were being healed. And in context to Old Testament prophecy, it should have told the religious leaders that the Christ was on the scene. Not only had John the baptizer been clear to the religious leaders as to Jesus' true identity. We saw that last Sunday. But on numerous occasions throughout the Gospels, the religious leaders specifically came to evaluate Jesus and his ministry. And each time we're told that not only were they unable to find any fault or a flaw with the things he did or the things that he said, but in Mark 1, verse 22, we're actually told, quote, they were astonished at his teaching for Jesus taught as one having authority and not as the scribes. Aside from all this, consider that the religious leaders were eyewitnesses to the countless miracles performed by Jesus. In Mark 3, they try to pass off his power as coming from Satan, but the existence of the supernatural was a reality they could not excuse away. These men were present when Jesus healed the lame man, when he restored sight to the blind, when he multiplied the loaves and the fish, when he forgave sin and cast out demons. From the afflicted. Even during Jesus' trial, these religious leaders had a difficult time making a case. And Mark 14, we're told now the chief priests and all the council sought testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but none could be found. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimonies did not agree. You see, as you examine the actions of the religious leaders in Jesus' day, it's important you always keep in mind that these men did not act out of ignorance. They didn't crucify Jesus as an accident, a lack of revelation with limited knowledge. The truth is that these men resisted Jesus knowing full well who he was. In actuality, this was a point not lost on Jesus which is why during the week of passion, specifically on Tuesday of this past week, Jesus taught these religious leaders a parable aimed directly at them. Let's read the parable together. Mark 12, the first nine verses. Jesus speaking. He says, A man planted a vineyard. And he set a hedge around it. Now, let me give you a little context. The man in the parable is God. And the vineyard is the people of Israel. Keep that in mind. So a man planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it. Hedge of protection. He dug a place for the wine vat and built a tower. And he leased it to vine dressers. These were religious leaders. And then the man went to a far country. Now, at vintage time, he, God... Sent a servant, a prophet, to the vine dressers, these religious leaders, that he might receive some of the fruit of the vineyard from his people, from the vine dressers. Well, this prophet, this servant, they took him and they beat him and sent him away empty handed. So you get in the flow of things. So he, God, sent them another servant, another prophet. And at this one, We're told that they threw stones and they wounded him in the head and sent him away shamefully treated. And again, God, he sent another and him they killed. And then Jesus says, and many others he would send, some being beaten, others being killed. He's describing here a long relationship that God had with the people of Israel demonstrated through the prophets. Therefore, God, still having one son, Jesus says, his beloved. This is not a prophet. It's not another servant. This is the son of God, God's son. We're told that he sent him to them last, saying, they will respect my son. But those vine dressers, these religious leaders, said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him, the Son of God, and killed him and cast him out of the vineyard. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. The point Jesus is making, you should keep in mind, was not lost on the audience. The religious leaders were... They understood what he was saying and they were so outraged that they wanted to arrest him immediately. Immediately. But they couldn't because of the multitudes. It was a public place. And while there is much that you can unpack from this parable, there is one point that Jesus is hammering home that I want to zero in on. And that is the fact that these religious leaders, according to Jesus, had more than enough evidence to know who he was. Jesus is saying to them, Amongst yourselves, you've reasoned that this is the heir. But you're still deciding to come and kill him, to take the inheritance. These men, the religious leaders, had been given the revelation of Scripture. They knew the Bible. And, and, and they had seen with their own eyes the incredible amount of fulfilled prophecy that had that occurred in their midst. Beyond that, they had the evidence of of countless transformed lives. They had the physical presence of Jesus right in front of them. And yet, how incredible, they still resisted him. This morning, I want to take our time together and discuss why These religious leaders resisted Jesus as their Savior, especially when they had been given so much evidence. And the reason I want to do this, I want to examine this topic, is because the same three reasons the religious leaders rejected Jesus in spite of the evidence is the same reason people resist Jesus today in spite of the evidence. This applies to whether or not you've ever accepted Jesus or you've accepted him, but you're still resisting him. And I bring this up on Easter because the truth, I could take time to present proof after proof after proof of the resurrection of Jesus. But I'm, I'm taking a guess that that's not why you're resisting Jesus. That it's not a lack of evidence, but it's something deeper. And that's where I want to go. First, there is no question that people resist Jesus in spite of the evidence because Jesus, let's just be real, is a fundamental threat to their authority. Understand, if these religious leaders had accepted Jesus as the Messiah, the implications were simply more than they were willing to accept. You see, if, if if they conceded Jesus' identity. They would have had to automatically concede that he then possessed the authority to tell them what to do. And they didn't like that. If we're going to be honest this morning, the truth is that people resist Jesus because they don't want to submit to his authority. If you boil it down to some very simplistic explanation, that's the truth. We, we don't want to submit. The reality is that people want to rule their own lives, call their own shots, be the captain of their own ship, master of their own destiny, admin of their own online profile. The reality, is it submission? We don't like the word. It implies weakness. Like the word submission, submitting, it, it sours in our mouths. There is no doubt that people, you, you want to do what you want to do when you want to do it. And why is that the case? Have you ever thought about it? See, at the core of man's rebellion has always been his desire to be God. Genesis 3, to be God, to be life's ultimate authority, the fundamental temptation of the enemy. He said to Eve, quote, for God knows that in the day you eat of the fruit, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. It's about being the ultimate authority. As it pertains to Jesus, the hang-up tends to boil down to this reality, that it's not a lack of evidence keeping you from submitting to Jesus. It's the submitting part, that if you accept Jesus as God, you'll also have to surrender your life to His. Fundamentally, Such an act requires you seed control and submit to the fact that his authority concerning your behavior as both your lord and your king actually overrides your own. See, in such a dynamic, you can no longer do as you please. Instead, you do what pleases him. And you know the idea of submission, the idea of servitude. I think it's much more difficult to accept as an American And I don't mean to mention that in kind of some trite or trivial way. It's true. Like our nation, our nation was actually born. How? In a rebellion against an authority. Like it's a fundamental premise to this great federalist experiment that people had the freedom. We even call it an inalienable right from God to live free of the intrusion of others. As a matter of fact, in many ways, freedom from authority has become the very definition of liberty. See, a country founded on the belief that each individual has the freedom to pursue life, liberty, and happiness subsequently yields a society filled with people who do not believe authority has the right to tell anyone else what they can and can't do. As an American, you believe you have the right to do with your body what you choose or to have sex with whom you want and when you want to. That you have the freedom, the the, the right, to set your own moral compass. And when an authority ever were to infringe on any of these things, you'll immediately cry out one word, you hear it a lot in our culture, injustice. Aside from this warped view of liberty, and I don't have time to unpack it, but it is a warped view of liberty you see, liberty isn't freedom from authority. True liberty is the right to choose one's authority. As Bob Dylan's saying, "Everybody's going to serve somebody. The reality, though, is that we resist authority because our culture has embraced a philosophy known as relativism. Let me just define that very quickly. Relativism states that because all points of view are equally valid, truth, or the very thing that defines right from what is wrong, then becomes completely dependent upon the perspective of the individual. The reality is that when a society does remove God from the human equation, a culture is left abandoning any type of absolute moral standard. You see, a relativistic society embraces a position in which Everyone is free to act upon their own interpretation of what is true. Like, you'll hear this in our society. What is true for you, man, that's great, but that doesn't make it true for me. What's true for you is true for you. What's true for me is true for me. And what right do you have to tell me I'm wrong, or what right do I have to tell you that you're wrong? Since this relativistic framework behind our society teaches that all perspectives carry equal weight, you know, anyone that challenges another's viewpoint, claiming there to be a higher authority that establishes the basis for what's right and wrong, they end up being labeled, right? A a religious fanatic or being unloving or intolerant. It's true. Intolerance is the only punishable crime of relativism. For example, and it's just an example, In today's world, if you were to take a stand, not against anything, but let's just say for the biblical definition of marriage, our secular society will label you intolerant, judgmental, unloving, and bigoted. People will challenge you by asking this, who gave you the right to tell a same-sex couple in love they can't get married? Who gave you the authority? And the truth, they have a complete point. If there is no God then there is no basis for anyone to place any of their moral standards upon another. And yet here's the kicker. Though relativism might explain the trends we see as it pertains to the moral fabric of our culture, we do believe in a God. A God who is by definition true and has established what is true for mankind through his word meaning what is morally permissible is no longer a matter of your perspective, but is instead a matter of what God has to say concerning that behavior. You don't get to decide. The creator does. His authority overriding yours. If we're being honest, many people today, even knowing who Jesus is, resist him for this reason. It's not a lack of understanding. But like these religious leaders, it's a refusal to submit to the implications. Yeah, there's only one throne in your life. Only one God, only one master. It's either you on the throne or it's Jesus. There's not, it's not a bucket seat. It's not, there's not room for two. People resist Jesus because to accept him would be to cede authority over one's life. But there's a second reason. There is no question that people resist Jesus in spite of the evidence because Jesus challenges their religious system. As it pertains to the religious establishment in Jesus's day, these men they took pride in a works-based religious system that combined the law of Moses with their man-made traditions. And, and, and keep in mind, it's not an accident then that throughout Jesus' earthly ministry, he is constantly poking, flaw, poking holes and pointing out flaws in that system. Through Jesus' teaching, he called out their religion as being only something that produced a false moralism. In Jesus' activities, you'll see that, that he showed disregard for Man-made traditions. And Jesus' associations, who he hung out with, he contradicted their judgment over sinners with his grace and love. As John summarized, the law came through Moses, but it was grace and it was truth that came in Jesus. The reality is that religion, religion has never saved a soul. Because religion only establishes a framework whereby man seeks to earn God's approval without God's direct involvement. And sadly, I have found that many people resist Jesus because they simply don't want to admit they need help. Religion is so quick to say, oh, here's how you can do it. That's not what Jesus did. You see, it all boils down to an issue of pride. Your pride. Mine our desire to be self-sufficient. For many, acknowledging the need for divine help is seen as nothing more than the evidence of human weakness. God, I don't know if you've had conversations with with skeptics, but but you'll hear them refer to God as a crutch for just the weak. One skeptic I was talking to even said, only sheep need a shepherd. I'm okay to admit that. See, it's this very point that Christian scholar and thinker, Robbie Zacharias, he observes this, writing, quote, A man rejects God neither because of intellectual demands nor because of the scarcity of evidence. A man rejects God because of a moral resistance that refuses to admit his need for God. Like, here's the point that most fail to understand as it pertains to this topic. Though the first step of salvation is to admit that you're in need of a Savior, the very thing religion tries to mask. In order for you to admit that you need a savior, in order for you to admit that you need salvation, that you need Jesus, you have to at first admit the failure of your idols. Let's unpack the idea of an idol very quickly. In his book, Counterfeit Gods, author Timothy Keller, he defines idolatry this way. He says, a counterfeit God or an idol is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living? Idolatry, then, is not a failure to obey God. It is a setting of the whole heart on something besides God. In layman's terms, an idol is anything or anyone you give a preeminent position in your life over Jesus. The reality is the religious leaders in Jesus' day and their best attempts at pleasing God through their works had created a whole religious system filled with idols. Idolatry is the only thing religion ever produces because many have a false understanding of what an idol, if I say the word idol, you you tend to think of the Chinese restaurant and the little statue out front as you're walking in. That's what you think of an idol. You know, something you put up in your home and you light incense to. Get that idea out of your mind. That's not what an idol is from a biblical context. Counterfeit gods. You know, they develop so subtly. You have them. You know, the first step to developing an idol is that you end up defining your own hell. Like, go with me here. No one can escape the reality that you're living in a fallen world. And as a such, you'll seek to pinpoint whatever it is that's causing your life to be miserable. You're in a fallen world, you've rejected God. So you're going to find the one thing that is making you miserable. You will define that as hell, as with Adam and Eve. Instead of recognizing the core problem you have is you, you seek to blame someone or something other than yourself. By definition, hell becomes the very thing that's making you miserable, so that you want to avoid now at all costs. We'll define hell as being rejection, or pain, emotional, physical pain. Being alone is hell, or fat, or single, or insignificant, or bored. And then after you define hell, what happens next? You see, it's only the natural that you're going to search for a Savior that will save you from this self-defined hell. Like, let me use just the examples I just mentioned. If hell is being rejected, if it's a rejection, your Savior becomes what? Being accepted at all costs. Your Savior becomes an image, an appearance. If hell is physical or emotional pain, That's what you want to avoid at all costs because it's hell. It's making you miserable. Your Savior then becomes what? Pleasure, the pursuit of pleasure, partying, drinking, popping pills, having sex, living loose, anything to numb the pain because it's your hell. So you go to these Saviors. If hell for you is being lonely, and loneliness is terrible, your Savior becomes what? A group of friends. If hell is being fat, my life would be so much better if I could fit into my bathing suit. You laugh, but body images? If it's being fat, that's making you miserable, then what becomes your savior? The gym, or a diet, a healthy lifestyle whatever it is that will save you from your fat. If hell's being single, your savior becomes a boyfriend or a girlfriend, a spouse. If hell is being insignificant, if that's the one thing that you just can't handle, your savior becomes a scene or a cause or a job. If hell is being bored, your savior becomes a hobby. Or sport. And once you've pinpointed your source of misery, hell, and then you've determined what you believe will save you from that hell, what follows? You see, it's only the natural that you'll end up worshiping that person or thing by exalting it to a place of priority in your life. It's your savior, also known as an idol. You see, whether you intend to or not, it's only natural that you will, after defining hell and a savior, You will make sacrifices, dedicate time, invest energy and resources, convinced that person or thing is going to save you. The truth, we all worship saviors. This is why people end up worshiping their outward appearance, a group of friends, an exercise routine, a significant other, a cause, a recreation. That thing is your God. And yet, I should note, There's two problems with the approach. First, I hate to break it to you. You've completely misdiagnosed hell. You are what makes you miserable. You can look to blame other things, but it's your sin. And secondly, idols make lousy saviors. You see, many people reject the salvation that Jesus provides because they don't want to admit what the real problem is. That it's you. That it's your need for a savior. It's why the religious leaders resisted Jesus. They thought they were good enough. They'd created their own religious system that allowed them to worship gods of their own making, of their own choosing, while resisting the one savior that they really needed. Finally, aside from people resisting Jesus because he's a threat to their authority or the fact that he challenges their self-created religious systems, many people resist Jesus in spite of the evidence because Jesus is a threat to their way of living. You know, after years under Roman occupation, the Jewish leaders had adapted well. As long as they kept the peace, their relationship with Rome actually proved to be mutually beneficial. There is no doubt that these men resisted Jesus because his growing popularity had become a political liability. Jesus was a threat to their power. He was a threat to their influence. He was a threat to their subsequent wealth. The very scene that had occurred on Palm Sunday where Jesus comes and there's a million people chanting Hosanna, Hosanna the King, that does not float well with Rome. If we're speaking truthfully this morning, many resist Jesus because they don't want to change their way of living. Like the religious leaders, people understand that when you surrender your life to Jesus, many aspects of your life will automatically change. It's a truth. You start following Jesus... Friends will leave you. Activities are going to change. Lifestyles will naturally alter. Behaviors will adjust. Not because Jesus demands any of these things. You're just heading in the opposite direction you once were. As I've mentioned it before, here's a truth many don't understand in Christianity today. Though Jesus may love you just the way that you are, and that's a truth, doesn't mean Jesus wants to leave you that way. Like that's not the point. He loves you just the way that you are, come. And then his intention is to change you into something else. Why? Because you are your problem. It's not rocket science. For some, just like the religious leaders though, prospects of radical life changes are not all that appealing. As you examine the gospel record, you'll discover that the people who came, the people that encountered Jesus, the people that had an incredible experience with the Christ, they did so because fundamentally they were sick of their status quo. Like they were tired of what this world had offered, what this world had yielded. They wanted their lives to change for the better, which is why they came to Jesus. They recognized and accepted the fact that the only person that could really save them, the only person that could really liberate them and set them free, the only person that could change and transform them into something new was Jesus. See, all these people were willing to embrace a life change because they wanted their lives to change. Friend, please know that the greatest lie Satan has ever told is the same lie he tells today. And is this a lie that life without God, life without Jesus is more fun, exciting, and fulfilling than life following him? Let me give you a proof. I think you'd be really hard-pressed to tell the leper or the lame man or blind Bartimaeus that their lives were better off before they encountered Jesus. Man, this following Jesus thing has been a drag. I know I can see now and walk, but man, it was better back in the day. Like I've never met someone that has come to Jesus and regretted it. You know, Zach, in the world, when I was being ripped off, unfulfilled, miserable, shackled in sin and guilt and condemnation, Man, life was so much better then than now following Jesus. You see, if you're honest, I could have taken time to present for you proofs of the resurrection. I thought about it. But I'm not sure that anyone who actually takes time to come to church on Easter is resisting Jesus because of a lack of evidence. I think you're resisting Jesus for deeper reasons. See, like the religious leaders, if you'll be honest, you aren't resisting him on the basis of, of a lack of truth or evidence. You're resisting Jesus because it's likely you're unwilling to submit to his authority or humble yourself by admitting that you have a need for a Savior or that you're unwilling to embrace the life change that will automatically come when you follow him. And you know, I don't want to close our time together on a sour note. It is resurrection day, but I am. (laughs) Apart from Jesus, according to this parable, life gets a lot worse, not better. Look back at the text, the last verse we read. Look how Jesus concludes his parable. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine dressers and give the vineyard to another. It's like Jesus drops the mic and just walks off. boom Like, I pray you realize that when it comes to your life, Jesus is the final point of God's revelation to you. But the only thing that comes next is judgment. Let me frame it this way. Here are the options, if I'm right. If you're a believer, if you're a Christ follower, if you've you've given him your life, do you realize that in that context, the absolute worst this life will ever be? And it can be bad. It can be gnarly, it can be hurtful. It can be painful. The worst this life ever is, do you realize that's the closest to hell you're ever gonna be? Because you have heaven and your eternity. Like, take the worst thing you've ever been through. You got through it. That's the worst it'll ever be. It's uphill from here. But then that means the other end of the the equation is true. That means that, that take the most glorious experience you've ever had in this life. And there can be some good ones, but do you realize that's the closest to heaven you'll ever be? That it only gets worse. I, I just, it's, it's hard for me to believe that there are a lot of people that are saying deep down, I'm resisting Jesus because of a lack of evidence. The very fact that you even said I'm resisting Jesus means you've affirmed something about Jesus. You've affirmed that he's alive, but guess what? He died. So you've already affirmed an incredible premise that Jesus is alive because you're resisting him. You can't resist someone who's dead. You seen weak at Bernie's. You can only resist someone who's living. You can only resist a savior who is alive. Right now, some of you are resisting. What are you resisting? Um, This deep thing. What is it? Um, It's the Holy Spirit. It's Jesus' representative. And let me ask you this question. In resisting Jesus, what are you actually resisting? In Luke chapter 4, Jesus comes into Nazareth his hometown, goes to the synagogue. He asks for the scroll of Isaiah the prophet. He opens. He opens the scroll, and this is what he reads. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And then he Rolls the scroll up, he's like, This is fulfilled in your hearing. So when you're resisting Jesus, let me tell you what you're resisting. You're resisting what he's wanting to do in your life. Which means it's silly. You, the brokenhearted, are resisting the healing of your broken heart. You're the blind man resisting the very individual that can give you sight. You're in shackles to your sin and Jesus holds the keys and he wants to liberate you and set you free and you're resisting him. I wanna stay here. And you know what, that's fine. Just be honest about it. Just be honest about it. But this morning, if in that honesty, you're like, what am I doing? I ask that you take a risk on Jesus He won't let you down. The Bible says he'll never leave you nor forsake you. You can hold on to the authority or you can give it to Jesus. You can set up your own little idols, saving you from all these petty things, or you can humble yourself and accept the true savior. You can resist your life changing or you can let him change it. The evaluation's very simple. Is Jesus worth it? Is He worthy? Like what will you do? Has it worked out real well, you being your God? How's that played out? I know some of you. It's terrible. So at what point will you say, "You know what? I'm a terrible authority. I should maybe cede it to Jesus. These gods are lousy saviors and his burden is easy and his yoke is light. My life stinks and I'll give Jesus a chance to make it whole. And so Father, Lord, we just